All right, good evening. Uh, we are picking up tonight, uh, starting lesson nine, uh, God's grace in holy baptism. Um, I kind of mentioned, I think maybe it was last week or a couple weeks ago, that these are some of my, my favorite lessons. And again, getting into baptism and holy communion and absolution, it's, it's not because, uh, you know, these are more important than the lesson on the Trinity or on, um, on, on Jesus, um, but it's really in the sacraments where we start to see sort of where I, you know, I think Lutheranism starts to differ from much of the rest of Protestant Christianity. Um, it's where the sacraments kind of make that a little more obvious. And so, um, whereas I think most of what we've discussed so far, I would hope that the vast majority of Christians would agree with, it's really here in the sacraments that we start to see um, a little bit of, of difference and separation. And I think it really comes down to one question with the sacraments, and that is asking the question, who is at work in the sacraments? Is this something that I am doing for God? Am I being baptized in order to show God my uh, reverence or my worship or my, my commitment or my dedication? Or is God doing something for me, giving something to me through baptism? And that really is kind of where you, you see the paths start to separate. Um, and so as we're going to see tonight and over the next couple of weeks as we cover the sacraments, um, we will see sort of how, how we view scripture as answering that question um, and how we as Lutherans um, make our confession. So lesson nine, baptism. Here we go. Uh, introduction. It's customary for a bride and groom to exchange rings during their marriage ceremony. Their marriage would certainly be valid, even if they didn't exchange rings. I think this is actually even for some reason becoming more and more popular. Um, they could even save a good amount of money if they didn't purchase wedding rings. All right. Uh, so we are on uh, lesson nine. Sorry, we, we dropped internet there. So I'm picking up back in the, the introduction. Lesson nine on baptism, page 63. So we talked about why, why is uh, the exchange of wedding rings still an important thing that couples do. Um, and, and what we kind of discussed was just simply that it's, it's a vis visible expression of love. It's a, it's a big deal. It's more than just a symbol. Um, and yeah, it shows uh, one of the answers given, uh, I belong to my spouse, my spouse belongs to me, all of those things. So here's the connection. God has already shown us how much he loves us in his word. Every time we, we hear the gospel, every time we hear the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done to save us, every time we hear that declaration of the forgiveness of sins, that is God saying, I love you. Um, this is the gospel. But saying I love you isn't enough for our gracious God. He wants to show us his love. He wants us to have a visible sign of his love just as couples proudly wear their wedding rings as a sign of their love for one another. One of the ways that God showers his grace on us in a visible way is through holy baptism. God's love in baptism is the same love he has given us in his word, but now he shows us this love in a special visible way that will have a special meaning for the rest of our lives. So um, the, the, the love that is expressed to my wife in giving her that wedding ring 
is not a different kind of love that I have for her now. It's not different than the love I express to her when I say, I love you. It's the same love, but it's now attached to a visible thing. It's, it's, it's the word, it's the message, it's the communication, I love you, but it's something that she can point to and look at and touch and feel and, and say, this is, this is the love that my husband has for me. And that's the thing that we're going to talk about here in baptism is God is communicating, he's distributing, he's, he's blessing us with that same love that he gives to us in the message of the gospel, but now he's attaching it to something visible so that we can see it, um, so, so that we can visualize it. Um, and that's what makes the sacraments so beautiful, so, so powerful. So here's our lesson goal. Um, the next few lessons will introduce us to the concept of a sacrament, which is a visible sacred act. That's really what the word sacrament means. A sacred act in which God applies his love and grace to us. Lesson nine will specifically introduce us to baptism um, as a special act of God through which he adopts us into his family, forgives our sins, and assures us of eternal life in heaven. All right. Before we get into baptism specifically, though, um, I want us to kind of have an understanding of what do you mean by the word sacrament? What qualifies as a sacrament? Well, there's a number of def definitions that people or Christians use, and I think it's good for us to understand, I say this right up front, that the word sacrament is not found in the Bible, just like the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, Bible critics or, or Christian critics will say something like, well, there you go. See, you guys made this thing up that's not even in the Bible. And it's like, no, it's a word that Christians use to, to reference or describe something that is very clearly in the Bible something that is very clearly taught. Um, and so to categorize these things that fit into this, this, uh, this realm of a sacrament, um, that's the word that we use to describe them. And there's a couple of different ways, a couple of different things that we're looking for. First of all, a sacrament is a sacred gift or act that offers and gives the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to see that with, with, with baptism, with Holy Communion, with absolution, they all come with that promise attached for the forgiveness of sins, right? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, Peter will say. Jesus will say, take and eat, take and drink. This is my body. This is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. When we get into absolution, what is that, right? I forgive you all your sins. This is the point of the sacrament, right? It is to distribute this thing this most wonderful, beautiful, comforting thing that Jesus has won and accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins. How does that come to me? How does what Jesus accomplished on the cross now get applied to you, now get applied to me? This is one of the ways we're going to see, right? The sacraments. Number two, or the letter I, a sacrament is a sacred gift or act that is instituted by Christ. This isn't going to be something that Peter came up with. This isn't going to be something that Paul came up with. It isn't going to be something that Christians invented. Martin Luther didn't come up with this. I've heard some people say that. Um, no, it has to be something that Jesus Christ himself said. Here it is. This is something I'm giving to my church. This is something I want you to go and do, go and give to people. Okay. Uh, thirdly, the letter C uh, a sacrament is a sacred gift or act that is connected to God's word, okay? And we're going to see this is vitally important um, because this is going to be 
the thing that ultimately gives these sacraments the power to do what we claim, right? Um, we'll see the, the, the question from the small catechism. Luther will ask it for both sacraments. How can water do such great things? How can eating and drinking do such great things? And his answer to both of those is, it's not the water. It's not the eating and drinking. It is the word connected to the water, the word connected to the bread and wine. It is the word of God. It is still that message of the gospel. It is still that message of God communicating, I love you, that makes the thing what it is, that makes a sacrament a sacrament. So it has to be connected to God's word. And then finally, um, this is now kind of what we see with the sacraments. It is something that has the earthly elements attached to it. Um, and on the bottom of the page there, just kind of a little explanation. Um, Lutherans have not always used that, uh, that final one, the earthly elements attached to it. Um, because uh, I, when it comes to, to absolution, some people will say, is absolution a sacrament or is it not? Um, I, I say it is. I think it is. And when it comes to what is the, the earthly or visible element of that then, I would say, well, that's the pastor. Um, it is the person there in flesh and blood communicating those words, as opposed to reading them right in your Bible, right? Um, it is somebody in flesh and blood standing there communicating that word to you. Um, but some people will say, well, there isn't like bread or water or wine. Um, and so there isn't an earthly element attached to absolution. I don't think that's as big of a deal. And that's kind of the point at the bottom is to just say, regardless of whether or not you include that fourth part to the definition, the fact remains that we want to hold baptism, holy communion, and absolution in the highest esteem as these great gifts that, that Jesus has given to his church for the purpose of distributing the forgiveness of sins. All right? Okay, if we turn the page, um, the first question we're going to look at is just simply, what is baptism? What do we mean when we talk about baptism? What does that word mean? How does the Bible use it? Well, there's a couple passages at the top of page 64, and each of the words that are underlined have in the original Greek language, the word is baptizo, baptize. And, and if we kind of see how is this word used, what is the context, how is it translated, we can kind of begin to understand, I think, what this word really means. So here's the first one, very simply, Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water. Um, and the word baptized there in the Greek is obviously baptizo. Um, so what is one thing that we're looking for when it comes to baptism? Yeah. It needs to have what? Water, right? Um, and maybe that sounds so obvious, like why are we even mentioning it? Well, believe it or not, there are people who baptize without water. Um, they, 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 they view it as a laying on of the hands. They, you know, um, some sort of uh, transaction that takes place apart from water. But it's very clear that every time this word is used in the Bible, it is always connected to and used in the context of water. Okay, that's what John says. Mark chapter 7, I think, adds something interesting. Jesus is talking here. Um, and he makes the point, he says, that the Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they, literally the Greek word there is baptize. Um, and they observe many other traditions, such as the baptizing 
of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So we need to understand that the word baptize is not just simply this church ritual, this thing that we kind of came up with, but it, it, it is, it's a word that was used in, in really regular everyday Greek language, right? To baptize something is to what? Well, here's where we're, we're looking for a definition. What is baptism? To baptize simply means to wash, right? We got that from the, the, the passage there in Mark 7. And, and how do you wash things? Well, you wash with water. That is the most basic fundamental definition of baptism. What does it mean to baptize? How do we understand this original Greek word? Baptizo means to wash something with water. Okay, well, that makes sense because that's exactly what we're going to talk about happens in baptism. Okay. So let's move on then and, and, and kind of further answer this question. What is baptism? We're going to look at um, how the sacrament of baptism fits the qualifications of the sacrament that we looked at on the previous page. Um, so where does it where does it come from? Well, Matthew 28, 19, this is a passage that we're going to come back to a bunch of times. But here, the Great Commission, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, um, just so we're all on the same page, baptism was instituted by Jesus. Good. Here is Jesus saying, go and baptize, right? Go and, 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 and make believers, make disciples. How? By baptizing them, okay? By washing them with water. Acts chapter 8, verse, verses 36 and 38. This is an interesting story. If you remember, this is Philip, uh, the, the, the disciple, walking along the road. And all of a sudden, he, he hears this, this Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, a eunuch was typically a, a guard of the queen or the princess um, in Ethiopia. And he's bringing back from Jerusalem to Africa a scroll. And the scroll that he comes and he purchases is the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading through the scroll of Isaiah. And I don't think it's by any mistake, but what part of Isaiah is he reading? Well, he's reading probably the most well-known words in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, the, the, the talk of the suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And Philip says, he hears him reading this. And Philip goes, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy goes, how can I? Who knows what this is talking about unless someone explains it to me. So he invites Philip up, up into his chariot and they start talking. And, 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 you know, we don't really hear much about the rest of the conversation. But other than Philip starts to teach him about Jesus. And apparently at some point in that conversation, Philip makes the transition into the passage that we just heard Jesus say. And Philip teaches this man about baptism. Because here's what happens. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? That's all. That's the only thing we were missing, right? We found some water. Why shouldn't I be? What is to, to stop me from being baptized? I love that question. And of course, the answer is nothing, right? Why shouldn't I? Absolutely, you should be. So he gave orders to stop the chariot. Um, then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him, right? Um, so, baptism uses the earthly element of, yeah, again, obvious, but we just got to make sure we all understand that, right? No baptism happens without water, 
Um, this is what the man was looking for. Here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Okay. Acts 22, verse 16. This is Paul now talking. He says, be baptized. And here's the washing that takes place, right? Be baptized and wash your sins away. Um, so, so again, when we're talking about this, um, how, does, how does baptism do this? This, this is biblical language, right? Um, to, to, to see baptism as a means by which God gives to us the very gift of forgiveness Jesus won on his cross. Have your sins washed away, right? Be baptized. Uh, Mark 16, verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So baptism here offers and gives the forgiveness of sins. And if you have the forgiveness of sins, if you have this gift from Jesus, then what do you also necessarily have? Salvation, right? I mean, that's where whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, right? Here it is, right? Um, nobody's making it into heaven with their sins, right? Um, through faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are washed away. Um, and therefore, the forgiveness of sins also means salvation, okay? All right, so that just kind of gives you a run through as to how, you know, does baptism fit into this criteria that we have? Um, um, remember that acronym office? I think it's a good way to kind of easy way to remember what is, what is a sacrament? What does it do? What does it offer? In the next section, we're going to look at the, these three things. Baptism, its blessings, its strength, and its power. Okay, so first starting with the blessings of baptism. And these are just the best part. <laughs> um, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Remember, this is Peter's Pentecost Day sermon. So we looked at this back in a previous lesson on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 50 days after Easter, 10 days after Jesus has ascended into heaven, he tells his disciples, go back into Jerusalem and wait for the, the power that is coming to you from on high. And here it is. And so what happens? Uh, the, 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 the spirit is poured out over the disciples. They start preaching and teaching in these other languages. The Jews there in Jerusalem said, don't pay attention to these guys. They're drunk, right? And Peter stands up and says, no, we're not drunk. Number one, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. I love that line. Um, but more importantly, Peter says, this was to fulfill what God said through the prophet Joel. And that begins his sermon. And we looked at the first couple of verses of that sermon. But later on, Here's where Peter goes. Peter wants all of the people there in Jerusalem to say, look, Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. He is the one who was coming that you've all been waiting for. And what did you do to him when he came? You crucified him. And we're told that the people there in Jerusalem were cut to the heart. And they asked Peter, what do we do now? And here's Peter's reply. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what is the blessing that is received in, in baptism according to this verse? You see it highlighted there in your notes. Um, forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just uh, the Holy Spirit's presence. That's true. 
But, but think back to that previous lesson. What is the gift that the Holy Spirit comes to bring to you? What does he bring about in you? Faith, right? The gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the, whole, uh, of the Holy Spirit. We looked at this passage from 1 Corinthians 12. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So to have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you is to say that you are one who believes that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you have been given faith. So I think we can boil that down even further and just say, what are the gifts here promised in baptism? Um, I, I describe them this way. They're the two sanctified F words, faith and forgiveness, right? This is what baptism brings, faith and forgiveness. Um, first Peter chapter three, this is just a great section. Um, Peter writes, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Remember, that was Noah and his wife, their three sons, and their wives. Eight people, right? And here's, here's what Peter's doing. He's making a connection between what God did with water at the flood and what God now does with water in baptism. There's going to be a connection there. Um, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So much to unpack there. Number one, a lot of Christians who don't believe that, 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 that baptizing with water actually does something, but rather just sort of symbolizes an inner thing that's happening, um, will use this section and say, there it is right there. Water symbolizes baptism. They see those three words together and they say, a water baptism is nothing but a symbol. But that is just running roughshod over the whole context of the verse. That word water, what water is being referenced? This water symbolizes baptism. Is Peter referencing the water of the flood or the water of baptism? The water, the water of the flood. Because, because replace the word water with bapta, uh, uh, baptism, and it makes no sense. Baptism symbolizes baptism? No, that doesn't make any sense. What he's saying is, eight were saved through water, the water of the flood. And this water of the flood symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. So what is he saying? Well, if Noah and his family were literally drowned in the flood, but somehow still saved, spiritually then i guess we could say maybe baptism is just sort of a symbol because noah and his family though they drowned and were perished and, and perished in the flood they were still spiritually saved but they weren't they were actually literally saved by means of the water of the flood we, we think of the flood as being just water of destruction and that's true for the unbelieving world but what was the water of the flood for noah and his family Peter says here that it was actually the water that God used to save Noah and his family from the, the, the unbelieving and corrupt world around them. And now Peter says, 
In the same way that God used water to save Noah and his family, God now does the same for you through the water of baptism. And, and notice, this is where a lot of Christians will say, well, there's water baptism and there's spirit baptism. But, but notice, there, there's, there's no mention here of, of the spirit. There's no separating those. Peter says the water of baptism saves you. Because the water baptism is the spirit baptism. And the spirit baptism is the water baptism. There's only one baptism. Um, this water of the flood symbolizes, it foreshadows, it pointed ahead to what God would really do for people through the water of baptism. And, and then you'll, you'll hear other Christians who will say, well, baptism is just kind of an outward act. To, to represent or symbolize an, an inward or an internal changing. And it's like, no, uh, here it is. Peter says, it's not an outward thing. Baptism is not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not just this exterior show that we put on to, to, to represent something that's happening inside. No, he says, here's what's happening through a water baptism which is a spirit baptism, and a spirit baptism, which is a water baptism. He says it's not this exterior thing, this, this removing of the dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. And that word pledge is weak. It, it really is. It's not a bad translation. It's just not a great translation. The Greek word there is really a guarantee. It's an absolute. And so the question is, who is making the pledge in baptism that you now have a good conscience toward God. Am I the one making that pledge? Am I the one making that guarantee? Or is it God? It's God, right? This is what he's doing. Just as God did this through water for Noah and his family, so here is what God does for you through water in baptism. He guarantees you a good conscience toward God. How can he do that? How can this, how can water do such great things? What's the last sentence? How can baptism save me? It saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus has the power. And so when Jesus says, go and baptize, and here are all of the promises that I'm attaching to it, that can all be true because Jesus rose from the dead. Because that is the validation that Jesus is God. That Jesus has the power to make the claims that he does. And so when we baptize now, um, we go with the very authority of Jesus himself. Um, and so here it is, right? What is what, what blessing is received in baptism? We look at this and we would say salvation itself. Baptism saves you. And when somebody wants to say, no, baptism can't save you, only Jesus can save you. But what if Jesus, like the real Jesus himself said, yeah, but I'm giving that authority to the act of baptism. That through baptism, here is how I'm going to give to individuals the salvation that I alone can win, right? So baptism is not something we pit against Jesus. It's not, well, what saves you, Jesus or your baptism? The answer is yes, because Jesus says baptism saves you.
Go and make disciples. What does that mean by baptizing them? Go and bring people into the family of believers. Go and bring people into the kingdom of God. Go and share the salvation that I have won and apply it to individual people. How do we do this, Jesus? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. Galatians chapter 3, another great one. I love all these passages. Peter, uh, Paul writes to the Galatian Christians, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. If you remember um, one of the parables that Jesus told, um, uh, the parable of the wedding banquet, and uh, this, this man is preparing a, a banquet for a wedding, and he tells his servants, everything is ready. Go out and bring in all of the people that I have invited as my guests. And one after another, they say, oh, I'm too busy. Oh, I got crops to plow. I got, you know, this to do, that to do. Um, they don't come. So the servants come back. They inform the master of this. He goes, I, go out, find anybody. Just bring people in, fill the banquet, find the people in the gutters and in the alleyways, uh, in the outer country parts, go as far as you have to until my banquet is full. They come. And what does the wedding banquet master recognize when he walks in? You remember? someone, just one guy, doesn't have the proper clothing on, right? And, and, and people will often ask, well, was this like a Jewish custom that you not only had to pay for like a week's long wedding banquet, you also had to clothe people? Like, no, this wasn't a Jewish thing. This is part of the parable. But the point of it is to say what? That to get into the wedding banquet that God hosts, it's not just enough for him to prepare the banquet. It's not just enough for him to lavish it. It's not enough for him to invite people who don't deserve to be there, but he's also going to make sure that he has given you the clothes so that you are properly dressed to attend such a fancy occasion. And somehow a guy is there who is not. And here's the point. The Bible uses clothing to sort of represent this idea that how we are dressed represents our life right? Um, the, uh, the, the Old Testament does this too, right? Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The book of Revelation talks about these in white robes, who are they, right? And John says, well, <laughs> you know, these are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So this picture of clothing is like, if I'm going to get into the wedding banquet on my own, on my own accord, say, God, here is my life. Judge me based on how well I live. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get into heaven on my own righteousness. And this is what the guy did. And you remember the, the master of the banquet said, get him out of here, throw him out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because he doesn't have the white robe. He doesn't have the righteousness that is not his, but is given through faith in Jesus. And here it is. Paul says, all of you who have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Now, there's something I think every human being has thought of at least a time or two in their lives. I die and I stand before the, the, the God of the world, of the universe. I stand before my, my judge and maker. How does that play out? Well, again, if I'm there on my own accord, if I'm there on my own righteousness, I, I'm hoping that what I've done is good enough. But here's the reality. 
it's not. And it's not just going to be the good things that I have to present. It's also going to have to be the sinful things that I present. Um, but by virtue of my baptism, here's what Paul says. You are clothed, you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. So that when I stand before my judge on judgment day, it will not be, Noah, how good of a life have you lived? He will look at me and see nothing more and nothing less than the perfect, holy righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Here is the picture of baptism. So if you've ever wondered, you know, why in baptism are some people dressed in white? Why do we, why do we have baptismal gowns for our babies? Things like that. This is the passage. This is the idea, right? This is what's communicated in the, the white robe of righteousness, that being baptized into Jesus means that everything Jesus did and everything Jesus avoided, that perfect status is given to me in baptism. So that I stand before God on judgment day in the righteousness of his perfect son. So that there is not a doubt in the world that I'm getting in. Because it's not up to me, right? It's up to Jesus. And that's already been done. Yeah? John chapter 3 describes uh, the blessings of baptism this way. John, uh, Jesus answered. This is his late night conversation with a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Um, and, and, and here it is, um, this idea of when you and I are born into the world, what are we born into? We're born into sin, right? We are born with this sinful nature. Our, our physical birth into this life marks the beginning of our death. Um, and I, you know, I always mention this, when, when it comes to our lives, we count our years up. I'm one year old, two years old, three years old, and so forth. We celebrate these birthdays. But the reality is, we only do that because we don't know when we're going to die. If we did, I guarantee you, we'd count the other way around. We would count down. This kid is born, and he has 89 years left on this earth. And every year would kind of be a sad countdown. Um, because this is what our physical birth means. So Jesus says you need to be born again. You need a new birth that is not a birth into sin or a birth into death, but you need one that is a birth into a whole new life, a life that isn't marked for death. And that kind of life is not brought about by mom and dad. That kind of life is brought, out, uh, brought about by water and the spirit. Well, we've already seen this now. <laughs> What is that a reference to? What is water and the spirit? It's baptism. Um, and just in case we weren't sure about that, um, there's another passage that says almost the exact same thing. Paul says in Titus chapter three, he says, God saved us, not because of righteous things we had done. And here again is a passage that, that some Christians will use and say, baptism can't save you because Paul says in Titus three that we're not saved because of the righteous things we do. And I would say, you're right. Baptism is not a righteous thing we do, however. Baptism doesn't save us because it's a righteous thing we do. Um, but God saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. How does God save us? He saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. There it is. 
right? Being born again, water in the spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So what are the blessings of baptism we see in those last two verses, John 3 and Titus 3? A rebirth is being born again, um, is, is being given a renewal, a new life by the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? That makes us heirs of eternal life. It adds us to God's will. It adds us to that list of inheritance um, recipients. Um, and that inheritance is ultimately eternal life. So those are the blessings of baptism. Just a quick look at them, kind of a, a run through in the nutshell. Um, I mean, there's what else is there, right? <laughs> what else are we lacking? Um, the gifts of baptism, just amazing to, to, to consider. What about the strength? Um, the Bible also talks about strength that is given to us in baptism. Um, and it's here in Romans chapter six. Paul writes this. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him, with Christ, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So Paul is taking this. Here's the difference, right? Me on my own, apart from faith in Christ, what am I? Paul says, I'm a slave to sin. It is literally all I can do. I can't do anything righteous. I can't do anything God-pleasing. Apart from faith in Christ, I am only a slave to sin. But Paul says in baptism, you are intimately connected to the person of Jesus Christ. So that what Jesus does, you are credited with. So that just as Jesus Christ was crucified, so your sinful self was crucified with Jesus. You're there on the cross with Jesus. Well, what happened next? Well, Jesus was buried. You're laid beside him in the tomb. And then what happened three days later? Well, he rose from the dead. And Paul says, so have you. And you haven't been raised to go back being a slave to sin again. Because you've died to sin. And therefore, you've been set freed from sin. And so here's what your baptism does. Here's the power or the strength that it gives you. It gives you the strength to say no to sinful temptation. Whereas apart from faith in Christ, I have no strength to do that. I am literally only a slave to sin. But, but, but by means of my baptism, that sinful self has been crucified. It's been buried. And I've been now raised to live a whole new life. And now I have the strength. I have the strength to say no to sin. And to say yes to the will of God. I can do God-pleasing things. I can offer uh, good works, righteous acts that are pleasing to the Lord. To offer prayer and praise that rise up before him like sweet-smelling incense. I can do this now because of, in my baptism, I'm connected to Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells within me. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to sin anymore. 
My, my, my sinful nature, as long as I'm living in the flesh on this side of heaven, my sinful nature um, still hangs around me, right? But it's not the only part of me. It's, it doesn't have the only say, right? This is why in the very next chapter, Romans chapter 7, Paul will go on to describe this battle between the, the sinful nature and the new self, right? The good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil I hate, I keep on doing, right? And, and this battle that goes on. Um, and so he references this now. The whole reason why there, why there even is a battle, the whole reason why I'm not just still running through life headlong into sinful slavery is because of my baptism, right? So baptism as a source of strength, to look back on my baptism and say, here is the promise God made to me. Here is what God declared me to be. Here are the blessings God has given to me in my baptism. I have the strength to fight against sin, to live the new life that God gave to me through water and the word. Baptism source of power is sort of, again, the, the question that we'll see in the small catechism. How can water do such great things? How can just a couple drops of water impart all of these blessings? Luther's answer to that question is, again, it's not the water, right, but the word. And here's what we see. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Um, through the word. The word is what does it. The word is where the, the, the sacrament of baptism gets its power to do what it says. How can baptism forgive sins? How can baptism make me a child of God? How can baptism um, um, grant me this new life? Because it is the word that does it. It's this message of the gospel, this life-changing message of forgiveness, life, and salvation. And again, just a, a reference again, Titus 3, verse 5. God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And why is the word so powerful? Because it's the spirit who works through that word, right? So, baptism's blessings, its strength, its power, there you go, okay? Any questions so far? Well, it's the word that gives baptism's power, but you also said Jesus. Right. And, and, how, and how does Jesus... Um, how does Jesus, um, uh, how, how is his power unleashed, I guess you would say, right? Right. I mean, it's through that message of, of, the, of the gospel, right? Um, that where the message of the gospel, this message, and, and what is the gospel? It is the message of Jesus Christ. Um, it is the outbreaking into the world of this powerful message to change lives. And here's what baptism is. It's Jesus taking that powerful word, wrapping it up in water, and saying, applying this to individual people, here's what I'm doing. Yeah? Okay. 
All right, uh, an important section, um, unfortunately, uh, shouldn't probably have to be one, but it is um, children and baptism. One of the common questions about baptism that often arises among Christians is whether or not little children and infants should be baptized. Some say that there is no biblical reason to not baptize children. Others suggest that little children and infants should not be baptized because they can't understand what baptism is all about. Our practice is to baptize children. Historically, infants and children have always been baptized in the Christian church. And I'll give you some examples. This is Origen, ancient church father, lived about 185 to 250 AD um, from Alexandria in Egypt. Here's what he said. The church received from the apostles the tradition to give little children to baptism. That's pretty old, right? Um, and to make the claim that this practice itself came from the apostles, um, I think is a pretty bold statement. Here's another one. Uh, Hippolytus, who was from Rome, roughly around the same time, 170 to 235. Here's what he said. First, you should baptize the little ones. All who can speak for themselves should speak. But for those who cannot speak, their parents should speak or another who belongs to their family. So even this idea that comes where, well, children can't repent, um, and it's like, well, maybe not in such a way that you can audibly hear it, um, but when you are bringing your children, this is, you are making that confession on their behalf. We are bringing our child, and here is we are making their confession, that this is a sinful uh, human being who needs the forgiveness that God gives in baptism. Um, here's one of my favorites. Um, Bishop Fidus at the Council of Carthage in 250 AD asked the question, should we wait to baptize until the eighth day? Now, why do you think that was even a question? Do you know enough about Old Testament church history? What was, why was the eighth day important? Bingo, yeah. The eighth day was the day that you were circumcised, that you gave, you know, your, your Jewish baby boy their name. Um, you took them to the temple. And, and, and Christians saw the connection between um, um, circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. And so the question was rightly asked, um, since circumcision was done on the eighth day, should we wait and do the same for baptism? Um, and he asked this to this council of Christians. Um, and I love this. Here was the answer. Grace may not be legitimately withheld from anyone who has been born. <laughs> Which is a very fancy way of saying what? No. <laughs> Yeah, don't wait till the eighth day, right? Because while there are connections between circumcision and baptism, um, they are not directly like this was the Old Testament thing and this is the New Testament thing. No, um, because this is still Old Covenant, New Covenant, right? Um, and so uh, there, baptism is actually more than circumcision. Just like Holy Communion is more than the Passover. We'll talk about that in our next lesson. So I love this answer. <laughs> Just a fancy way of saying no. Um, don't wait till the eighth day. Very cruel. Yeah, right? If baptism truly gives what all of these passages in the Bible seem to indicate it gives, why would you ever withhold any of those from your child? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So, but here are a couple um, pointed reasons. The fact that uh, this has been a part of the Christian tradition is great, but I would say that's not enough for us, right? We want to go back to scripture. We want to say, what does scripture have to say about this? Now, we're not going to find a passage that says baptize babies, but can we take uh, a larger group of these passages and say, all right, here's what we know. Here's what the Bible tells us about children. Here's what the Bible tells us about baptism. Is baptism something that we should subject our children to? Okay. Well, the first question is answered this way in the passage that we've looked at a number of times now, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or another way, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we read this one already, Peter's Pentecost sermon. The very next verse, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's the very next verse. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, here's the question. What promise is Peter talking about? Well, the promise that he just made, that through repentance and baptism, the forgiveness of sins is given to you. That's the promise that Peter just made. And this promise, he says, is not just for you adults, it's for your children. It's not just for you Jews, it's for the Gentiles. It's for everyone that the Lord our God would call. So, um, reason number one, why do we baptize infants and children? Because children are a part of all nations. Then you read that Great Commission, and you just simply ask the question, okay, who does Jesus intend to be left out from baptism? Who does Jesus not want to be baptized when he says, go and make disciples of all nations? He's not just talking about all ethnicities, right? Um, all, all, Jesus says. Um, and he's not using hyperbole. Genesis 8, verse 21, we looked at this passage back in lesson one, I think, um, after the flood, every inclination of a per person's heart is evil from childhood. Psalm 51, King David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. John 3, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit, flesh. Sinful human beings give birth to sinful human babies, um, but the spirit brings about a whole different kind of birth, a rebirth right? So what do we learn in all of those passages? Why do we baptize infants and children? Because children are born sinful. They need exactly what you just said, Mitzi. They need these blessings, not just, it would be really nice for our kids to be wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. It would be really nice for our kids um, to be given the gift of the Holy Spirit, but they can wait until they're 13. No, they need they have this utter need of exactly everything that baptism promises. They need the forgiveness of sins. And baptism gives it, as Jesus says so. Last reason, Matthew 8, verse, uh, 18, verse 6, Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And I love that. That word little ones there. Jesus uses the Greek word micro. Um, 
So, so even if um, somebody would say, well, little ones, that, that could be, you know, prepubescent teenagers. No, that's not what Jesus means. Little ones, micro ones, many tiny human beings. I grew up in the generation that had micro machines, little tiny cars. If you'd hold up one of those little tiny cars next to a real life size car, that's what Jesus is talking about. If these little micro human beings who believe in me, Jesus says, they have faith. They believe, right? Which so many people say, well, children, babies, they can't believe. And people base that only on the fact that they can't hear them confess that faith. But they're totally neglecting the promise that is the Holy Spirit who works faith, creates faith. You're saying this God cannot communicate faith. Bingo, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. God can bring adults to, to, to faith, but he can't, he can't do that for, for babies. Or you go the other way and say, well, babies are going to be saved. But it has nothing to do with faith in Jesus. It's just simply because they're babies. It's like good luck making that case from the Bible, right? Um, exactly, right? Or I love this passage. Peter says this about Timothy, right? He says, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then finally, another reference. This is where the, the parents... We're bringing their children to Jesus to have him bless them and touch them. And what do the disciples do? Get these kids out of here. Jesus is too busy. He's too important. He's got adult stuff going on. And Jesus scolds his disciples. And he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. What does it mean to possess the kingdom of God? It means to be a believer. It means to have saving faith in Christ. So, so there's just a couple examples when people try and say, well, you know, children can't believe, babies can't believe. I'm sorry. Um, scripture disagrees with you. Children absolutely can believe because faith is more than just head knowledge, right? It is this working, this inner working of the spirit. So for all those reasons, we absolutely baptize babies, always will, um, and, and, and always should. Um, the last section that we'll look at tonight is just at the top of the next page, 66. And that is just this reminder, um, kind of using it this way. Have you ever planted tomato seeds? What would happen to a little tomato plant? that has just sprouted, if you put it in a closet at the beginning of May and didn't open the closet door again and look at it until September. Yeah, the same truth applies to the faith that sprouts in baptism. We know that the Holy Spirit uses baptism to create faith, to forgive our sins, to bring us into Christ's family. This is as true for little children as it is for adults. However, we need to remember that baptism is not a magic charm. The faith created and given in baptism needs to be nurtured through regular contact with the word of God. So I, this, is, this is the biggest point that I make to parents who come in and want their children baptized. I say, recognize that this is not your last responsibility as a Christian parent. It is the first. This is the beginning of your journey as Christian parents, not the end. Um, don't you dare make this the last time I see you or the last time that this baby hears the message of, of, of their Savior. 
Um, so that is um, children and baptism. The last couple of sections there, I'm just going to let you read through pages 68 and 67, frequently asked questions about baptism. I really encourage you to read those. Um, these are questions that have come up in this class often enough that I just put them in the lesson. Um, I just want people to have those. So take a look at those. And then on page 67 um, is the, the, the excerpts from the, the small catechism, the four questions, really all four questions that we strove to kind of answer in this, in this class. What is baptism? What does baptism do for us? How can water do such great things? And then what does baptizing with water mean? Okay, so take a look at those. Um, and uh, here is our summary, top of page 68, okay? God is generous with his grace. Not only does he tell us about his love and forgiveness in his word, but he also shows us his grace through sacred acts called sacraments. Our definition of a sacrament is something that offers the forgiveness of sins, is instituted by Jesus, is connected with God's word, and uses an earthly element. The baptism is one of the sacraments Jesus has given his church. In Christian baptism, water is applied to a person in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through baptism, God forgives our sins, creates and strengthens faith, and gives us eternal life. Baptism, therefore, is for infants, children, and adults alike. Baptism is especially comforting in the case of a young baptized child who dies at an early age because we know that God uses baptism to create faith in that child's heart and to assure us that that child lives in heaven. Baptism is also a comfort to us throughout our lives because it is God's pledge, God's guarantee of his love and mercy to us every day. Finally, baptism strengthens me to live a thankful and godly life in appreciation for the spiritual blessings Christ has given us. And then below that on page 68 is just kind of a rundown. Um, in our worship life, the, the application, it just kind of walks through some of the, uh, the things in the, uh, the baptismal rite found in the front of our new hymnal. So if you want to take a look at that, you can um, kind of breaks down a couple of the things. One of the things that is mentioned in there is making the sign of the cross. And this is something that I always just remind people of, um, that to do this is not a Roman Catholic thing. It is a Christian thing. Um, we dare not let the Roman Catholic Church take all of the good things, um, and that's one of the good things, one of the good practices. Um, in fact, Luther begins his small catechism with his morning and evening prayers and says that, that each Christian should begin the day by saying, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why? What is the point of that? Where were those words spoken? Where was this done? It's all a reminder of baptism, right? So that in the Sunday morning service, when I say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and I do this, what I'm doing is I am really retracing the sign of the cross that was made over you in your baptism, and I am reminding you who you are. This is your name, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the name that has been put on you in baptism. So a very fitting thing for any baptized Christian to make the sign of the cross at hearing those words, or really at any time, um, that, that they want that reminder and that comfort of baptism. So there's a little reference to that there um, in that breakdown as well. So take a look at that. And that is lesson nine on holy baptism. Next week, we will get into lesson 10 on holy communion. All right. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you later.